Good morning. Thank you for inviting me here to, you know, to gather with you and to the privilege of preaching and to hear God's word and to share God's word with you. Let's pray as we open up that word. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for the rich blessings you give us in Christ. We thank you for gathering us here this morning. We thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are a good and sovereign and gracious God, that you are in control of all things. And we ask this morning, Father, as as you speak to us through your word, that you will give us uh, good concentration, that by the power of your spirit, you will conform our hearts and minds to be like Christ, that we might live for his praise and live for his glory. Amen. As Joe said, I'm doing three talks here on prayer, and this morning we're going to be looking at who God is and why that draws us into prayer. And as I was thinking about this talk and as I was thinking about who God is, I was thinking about one of the great joys in my job. And one of the great joys of my job is to do camps. I go on camps with the students. There are two camps we do every year. One is called MYC, Mid-Year Conference, where we take the students away and, and they think about a topic. This year we looked at relationships and we thought about how God's relationships affect our relationships with each other. The other conference we do each year, oh sorry, and that one just covers Western Sydney University students. So Western Sydney University is not just Campbelltown, there's actually, it's a conglomerate of campuses, one over at Hawkesbury, another at Penrith, another in Parramatta and Bankstown and Liverpool come together as one campus as well. So all the campuses come together and we meet and we spend a week looking at God's Word. The other conference that we do is uh, uh, called NTE, National Training Event. A national training event is where all the campuses of AFES... Now, I work for an organisation called the Australian Fellowship of Evangelical Students. And so all the students who are part of this AFES group from all around Australia, they come and they go to Canberra. And we increase its population, you know, we double it for a week. Um, so, no, we don't. We only had about 10%. Uh, we, we go to Canberra and we do training with the students. And it's slightly different to NYC because we do train the students in how to read the Bible and how to prepare a talk. And then we send them out and they go to churches and the poor churches are inflicted with the bad training we've given them. Anyway, so that's the two camps. And I love those two camps. Sorry. I love those two camps. But what I love most about those two camps is actually not being on the camps. It's actually when I come home from the camps. I love coming home from the camps. And the reason I love coming home from the camps is I come home to my family. And my family is a great joy. Every time I come home... Every time I come home, there is a sign on the door from my daughter and she's saying, Dad, it is so great. We've missed you so much. I'm looking forward. We're excited that you're home. And it's just so exciting you're here, Dad. And I walk into the door, I open it up, I walk through, and the first person I generally meet is my eight-year-old. He runs out, Dad! It's so great to see you. We've done so much. Blah, 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 blah. And he just jabbers on for a little while. Then my daughter, hey, Dad, how are you going? I've missed you. Can we go roller skating tomorrow? And it's like, no. But anyway, 
And then my 30, uh, my 12-year-old son comes out and he's, Dad, Dad, you would have believed... My 12-year-old just chats. Dad, Dad, you would He just doesn't stop. And my 13-year-old comes out and goes, uh. And I go, there's my 13-year-old. But it's a nice, uh, it's not a, it's not a, uh, dad, you're here. No, it's like, uh, oh, good to see you. And so I interpret that next year, that's my 12 year old as well. So I love coming home. It is good. It is good to come home. And my wife is there and she's always cooked something nice and she's, she's crying usually. I'm trying to work out if it's tears of joy or sadness, but she's usually crying. And um, it's an exciting time to come home. It really is. I love coming home to my family. And as I think about why I enjoy coming home to my family, and I've, and I've loved the camps. This year's MYC, was, I spoke at, it was a great camp, and I had lots of great conversations, but I can say I found this year's the toughest because I miss my family the most. And I was thinking about why I love coming home to my family. And the truth is, the reason I love coming home to my family is because of who they are. They're just a joy and a delight to be around. It is a joy to speak to them. It's a joy to know them. It's a joy to relate to them. When we're talking about prayer, the truth is we're coming to a God who wants to relate to us. We're coming to a God who desires to be in our company, who's calling us to be in his, in his company. And just like coming home to my family and seeing the great joy, that is actually what God wants us to actually think about prayer. I am coming into the presence of my Father who wants to hear from me, who wants me to speak to him, who wants me to relate to him. And that is a joy and a great privilege and a great kindness. And so this morning what we're going to look at as we start this series, and it's only a short series on prayer, this morning we're really going to look at who God is. What is it about God that really draws us and encourages us to pray, that encourages us to relate to him? Because that's what we're doing in prayer. We're coming and relating to God. And he draws us in and he says, I want to hear what you have to say. And so the first aspect when we're thinking about who God is and why we should want to be with him and why we should want to pray to him is actually that he is our creator. He made us. God made us to relate to him. And that is the first reason why we should want to pray to him. And we read this. I'm going to spend a bit of time reading another part of the Bible. It's Psalm 104. And I'll explain why. So if you can follow on in your Bibles, that's okay. If you don't, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to read this and just listen carefully. Psalm 104. Praise the Lord, my soul. Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. The Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent and he lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. He made the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. He makes winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. He set the earth on its foundation. It can never be moved. You covered it with the watery depths as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains, but at your rebuke the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. 
They flowed over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place you assigned for them. You set a boundary they cannot cross. Never again will they cover the earth. He makes springs pour water into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the sky nest by the waters. They sing among the branch. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The land is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes the grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts, oil that makes their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. Now the psalm goes on from there. But the basic point of the psalm, as you see, is that God is the creator of all things. And at the start of the psalm, that's why it's talking about all the waters. It's a reference back to the original creation, where God separated the waters at the start of the creation to reveal the earth. It's an analogy so that we know who God is, that he is the creator of all creation. But then it goes on and it says something that I think, even though most Christians will go, yeah, God is the creator, that's great, fantastic. But then it says something that I think we tend to push aside and it's simply this. Yes, God is the creator and that makes us totally reliant upon him. But also he continually sustains all creation. Our God as the creator is also the one who continually sustains all creation. We are totally reliant upon God for our existence and for our ongoing sustenance. As you sit there and probably hear me rattle on for the next 20 minutes, the truth is you sit there by the grace of God and by the power of God He is the one who's sustaining and upholding every molecule in your body. The reason that you draw a breath is because God has decided that you will draw a breath. We think, well, God made us. And I know we tend to do this. God made us. Isn't that great? Now, what have I got to do today? The truth is everything you do today and every day you do by the power of God by the privilege that God gives you to actually go out and do it. God is in control of every molecule of this universe at every moment. And nothing happens except by his will. Nothing happens except by his will. And this is where it comes to prayer. If God is totally in control of all the universe... If God is the sustainer of all the universe, shouldn't you go and ask him about what is happening in your life? See, the first thing you've got to understand about prayer is that when you're praying to someone, you're asking them to do something for you. You're asking them to do a job. If you were to come and ask me, Hey, Adam, will you fly me to America? I'd go, sure, because I can't do it. It'd be a silly thing to ask me. I am not able to actually fulfil your requests. The reason we pray to God is we know that he is in control. We know 
that he sustains all things. And because he's the controller and the sustainer of all things, we know that we can trust him to do what we ask. We know that God is able to do what we ask. And that is the first thing to understand about prayer. We come to God and ask him to do stuff because we know that he can get it done. We know that he can do what we ask. That is the good thing. There is a negative aspect to it that I often do in my life. And the negative aspect is this. I won't ask God to do things in my life. Why? Because I don't want him to be in control. I don't want him to tell me what to do. My daughter, just just the other night, she said, my wife and my daughter are at the shops, she said to my, my daughter said to my wife, Mum, can I have an ice cream? And my wife said, no. And she said, no, can I really have an ice cream? And my wife said, no. And that was, and no, she said, no, it's my prerogative to say no and I can. Often we won't go and ask God, not because we're sure that he's in control, not because we're sure he can't get it done, but because we don't want to hear no. The truth is, God, as the controller, as the sustainer, has the right to say no. And we'll find out, actually, there is a very good reason why God will say no, and we'll look at that in a couple of weeks. But the first aspect we're looking at when we think about God and prayer is that we can come to God in prayer because he is He is strong, he is powerful, and he is able to do and fulfil our prayers. Which really leads to the second point we need to actually realise about coming to God in prayer, and that is that God is holy. We come to a holy God. Now, when we use the word holy, a lot of people go, yes, God is holy, and I have no idea what that means. I have students come to me, I say, God is holy. They'll go, yes, and I say, what does that mean? And they say, God is holy. And that's their answer. So when you're thinking about holiness, you need to actually understand, what does it mean for God to be holy? And that is simply this. When I talk about holiness, I always bring up on the campus what holiness means for the students. And so I have a drink bottle, and it's a manky drink bottle. It's really looking pretty bad. And I say to the students, this drink bottle is holy. And they look at it and they go, it looks beat up. It doesn't look like it's got any holes in it. But And I say, no, it's holy because it's been set apart for my purpose, for my use. Holiness means to be set apart for a purpose. That's what holiness is talking about. Now, that goes, okay, so holiness to be set apart for a purpose. What does it mean then for God to be holy? Obviously, God is not set apart for a purpose. No, God's holiness means God always acts in accordance with his own character. And this is where the connection comes. Our holiness... Our set apart for God's purpose means we're being set apart to display God's character in all creation. God's holiness means God always acts in accordance with his own goodness and uh, uh, perfection. He will always do the right thing. 
which leads actually to a passage, and this is where we're going to touch on prayer, that God says to Joshua. And this is what we read in the uh, book of Joshua, and it's only a short verse. Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. Now, this passage in Joshua comes after Joshua has just got all the Israelites out. And the Israelites are saying, well, why are we here? And Joshua said, well, this is what God has done. He's drawn you out of Egypt. He saved you. He's delivered you from the Egyptians. And he's brought you into the land of Israel. And he's given you this land. Therefore, choose who you're going to serve. And the Israelites go, oh, yeah, 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 we'll serve God. We'll serve God. And Joshua says, no, you won't. You won't serve God. You are an unholy people. You are rebellious and you are sinful and you do the wrong thing. And the people are like, no, 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 no. We will do it. And Joshua says, no, you won't. And this is going to end badly. But the people say they're going to do it and Joshua holds them to account. The point here is, and in this passage that I want to draw out, is that Joshua draws God's holiness and his justice together. And why this affects prayer is simply this. God's holiness, his perfection of character means we do not determine the way we approach God. In prayer, we can be flippant. Oh, I'll pray to God. God, uh, can I have... Oh, what have I got to do today? No. When you approach God, you are approaching a holy God, a serious God, a God who takes rebellion, who takes uh, our wickedness quite seriously. And we can think, well, you know, we're up there, God's up there, I'm down here, I've got to get things done. God, can you help me with the things I've got to get done? Yeah, thanks for that, and off I go. But the truth is, that is not the way you approach a powerful, holy and just God. We can be so flippant about prayer and think, well, this is not that important. But it is not the case. You only have to look at the book of Exodus to see how God uh, deals with wickedness. God is a holy, righteous God. To actually approach him means you need to approach him the way he is determined. You don't determine the way you approach God. God determines the way you approach him. The whole Old Testament, one of the big questions it is answering and is saying to people is, this is the way you approach a holy God. And the answer is through the blood of his son. The reason the gospel message is so powerful, the reason the gospel message is such good news is that it shows the way you approach a holy and just and righteous God. It is through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's why I love to go out and tell people the gospel because in the, in the sending of Jesus Christ, God opens the doors of heaven and he says, come in but you come through the blood of Jesus. You do not determine the way you approach God. You do not say to God, God, well, this is the way I'd like to approach you. This is the way I think you should be uh, act, and this is the way you should respond to me. 
You don't tell God how you respond to God. You don't determine to God, this is the way I should get to know you. You don't say to God, God, I don't like the way you're doing things. Because this is God's answer. When you create your own universe, come and tell me about it. But until that happens, you do things my way. I am a holy, just and righteous God. You do not tell me how to live my, uh, live my existence. You do not tell me how you want to approach me. That is not your decision. I love you and I want to relate to you. I will do so much. And he did. He sent his son who died on a cross so as to open the doors of heaven and allow us to go into the throne room. But the seriousness of God's holiness means we never actually take that great privilege and kindness flippantly. Our God is powerful. Our God is strong and sustains all things. He is also righteous and perfect and just. And he loves us so much that he's opened the doors of heaven, but he gets to determine the methods and the means for which we approach him. We do not decide that. Which actually leads really to why God and the graciousness of God that allows us to pray, and that is God's good and just character. And we saw that in the... In the example we looked at at the parable of the persistent widow. And I'm just going to read the end of what God is saying there in terms of the persistent widow because it really does reveal God's character. So reading from verse 6 of chapter 18 of Luke. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Here Jesus is encouraging his people to pray and he's saying to them, this is why you should pray. It comes directly from God's character. And we all know the parable, we all just read it, What the parable is relying on is God's good character because he's using the unjust judge. And the unjust judge is, and this is the point of the unjust judge, the unjust judge has this widow come to him. And this widow, she has no power. She can't force this unjust judge to do anything. And so she keeps coming, I want justice. And the unjust judge, go away, I can't be bothered. You're not going to give me anything. You're a waste of time, go away. And so she comes back, I want justice. And he's like, oh gosh, she's back again. No, I can't be bothered. I've got too much to do today. You know, I'll go away. And then she comes back again the next day. And he's just like, oh gosh, will this woman go away? And he said, I'm not going to, just go away. And she goes, I want justice. She comes back the next day and he said, the only way I'm going to get rid of this woman is if I give her justice. And so he gives a justice. And Jesus' point is simply this. If this unjust judge, who can't be bothered, the only reason 
the only reason he's going to give this widow justice is he is she is pestering him beyond all uh, all meaning of the word. If she is going to get justice, how much more will a perfectly good and just God not rush to give you justice? And that's Jesus's point. If this widow who's powerless and weak will be so persistent that she'll keep coming back to this unjust judge, how much more should you, who know a perfectly good and just judge who has the power and supremacy over all creation, not rush to actually come and bring your prayers and requests to him? The prayer, and Jesus says of the parable, is be persistent. Be persistent. God wants to give justice. God desires justice. We can fall into the trap and think, well, God will never do justice. God doesn't want to do justice. Uh, I, I won't ask for it. No, the truth is God is a just God. He wants to do justice and he'll be quick to do it. But there is a caveat. And the caveat is this. Be careful when you ask for justice because you might just get it. I had a guy at Bible study come and he said, why doesn't God act more justly? Why doesn't God stop rapists and murderers? He should just stop them straight away. And I said to him, because you die. And he was like, what? I'm not a rapist and a murderer. And I said, no, you're not. Good for you. But you would still die. And he's going, why would I die? Have you ever done anything wrong? And he goes, yes, that's why you would die. And he goes, but I'm not doing anything as bad as the rapist and the murderer. And I said, no, you're not. But here's the truth. If God is just, he must be impartial in his justice. God is totally impartial judge. If he's going to judge the rapist and the murderer, which he will and he says he will, then he's going to judge you for your wrongs and your evils as well. And who of here in this room can ever say they have never done anything wrong? Can any of you say, yep, if I stood before the throne of God, I'd, I'd straight through. The truth is that's none of us. I know I couldn't. I'd be toast if I stood before just and holy God. So I don't pray for justice. I pray for mercy. I pray for grace. I pray that God will show mercy and kindness and grace to people who are just like me, who are just as sinful. Because a perfect, holy and just God will show justice And if you ask for justice, trust me, you probably won't like it. God's grace, God's kindness is where we need to be. And if we're going to be people who are reliant upon the grace and the justice and the the grace and the kindness of God, 
then we want to see other people come to know the grace and the kindness of God. It is actually God's graciousness that actually draws us into his presence. It's God's graciousness in the blood of Jesus. And it's that graciousness we want other people to actually come and know. God will give justice to everybody who deserves it. But the truth is Jesus' blood has covered our wrongs, our sins, our evils, and they are bad. We are not good people. We have rebelled against a a holy and righteous God, but in his great love, he has drawn us into his throne room through the blood of his son. Reading this from Ephesians, and I love this passage. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. As I was reflecting and as I was preparing this talk and reflecting upon this passage, I counted four blessings of God's graciousness just here. God loves us so much. He has drawn us into a relationship with him through the blood of his son. He has said, I am not going to leave you to die. I am not going to leave you to suffer my just judgment. I am going to pay the price for you because I love you. You don't deserve it. Left to your own devices, you would die. And because I know that, I'm going to step in and take the price for you. And that God, who has so graciously given us his son, says, and I want to hear from you. I want you to speak to me. I want you to ask of me. I can give you everything you need. And the truth is, when you read this passage, what does he say? Who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And what he's saying there by every spiritual blessing is we enjoy all the benefits of relating to God right now. And one of the great benefits we have is being able to come into the throne room and present our prayers and requests before this holy and just God. And he wants to hear them because he loves us. Which really brings us to the final aspect of why we should want to pray. Our God is a relational God. We've been created for relationships. We've been created to be adopted as sons. We've been created to actually speak to God. We've been created to relate to each other, to love each other as God loves within himself. To look and care for each other and to pray for each other. It's a great privilege. I've been, as I've been preparing this talk, I've been praying for you. And it's been a great privilege. Our prayers say to God, I trust you, I trust that you're in control, I trust that you are sovereign. 
And I know that you love me because you've brought me into this throne room and I want to see that love for other people. And I'll pray for the people I'm ministering to because it is a great privilege to pray. And we do that because our God has made us to relate to each other. Which really brings us to the final point, and we won't spend much time, is the final reason why we should want to pray because of who God is, because of God's purposes for the creation. We have been created to relate as God relates within himself. We've been created to actually show God's character in relationships. One of the reasons why I wanted to bring up the Exodus passage is in the Exodus passage we see God actually deal with the Egyptians and we see that God actually saves his people and draws his people out through, uh, through the salvation of the Egyptians. And as the, uh, as the Israelites are seeing the dead bodies wash up on shore, they see what God has done for them. They see that God has delivered them from this great and powerful enemy and has just drowned them in the sea and they know that they have been saved by God. How much more shall we, who have seen God defeat our most powerful enemy, that of death, should we want to relate and draw near to him. We read in Colossians this, and this is about Jesus. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. I love this passage. The reason I love this passage because it shows just the sheer extent of the work of Christ. The blood of Christ has been built to reconcile, has been shed to reconcile all of creation. Every atom in all of creation has been set right. And to reconcile just means to set right, to right, relate rightly to God. And what Jesus has done through his blood shed on the cross is bring all of creation back into a right relationship. And what God is saying is simply this. I have reconciled all of creation to myself through the blood of my son. I love the creation so much that I have actually sent my one and only son to shed his blood so that you can relate to me. Come near. Draw near in prayer. Come speak to me and tell me your requests. I want to hear them. Prayer is the response Christians make to live, to live in line with God's good and gracious character. Christian living is living in response to God. See, the truth is, as Christians, we've been called by the Father to be conformed to the image of the Son by the power of the Spirit. The truth is the Christian life is a profoundly relational life. It's profoundly relational to God. It's profoundly relational to each other. But the good news is through prayer we are able to go into the heavenly throne of God and present our prayers to the holy, powerful, just and good God. And he wants to hear our prayers. 
He desires to hear our prayers. And because of Jesus' blood, we're able to ask for anything. And he says, ask. As you go out today, as you think about who God is, my question to you, are you going to put your trust and your faith in Jesus and actually ask God for your petitions and requests. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his death and resurrection. We thank you that through his blood you have opened the doors of heaven that we can present our prayers and petitions to you. We pray as your people here on earth that as we go out that we might display the character of Christ that we might be godly people who show your purposes and your will in all the earth. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.